It was February 15th, 1862, a very cold morning in Tennessee, and Grant had a crisis on his hands at Fort Donelson. This would be one of the supreme tests of his career as a soldier. His right wing under Division Commander McClernand had just been caved in by the Confederates. Grant was on the verge of failure, but the rebels had inexplicably gone silent. So Grant had an idea. With McClernand, Grant galloped along the line, calling out to his beaten men that the Confederates were retreating and urging every man to refill his ammunition pouch and take his place in the line, ready for an attack. Then, with his broken lines reforming, Grant uh, rode off to the left, where the former commandant of West Point Cadets, C.F. Smith, was waiting for orders. Smith was sitting under a tree beside one of his aides. Grant rode up to him and, without ceremony, said, General Smith, all has failed on our right. You must take Fort Donelson. Smith unfolded his long legs, brushed his mustache, and as he got to his feet, said briefly, I will do it, and sent the aide off to get the division into line. In no time, the division was ready to advance, 2nd Iowa in the lead, four more regiments massed behind it. While Grant rode back to see to the right of his line, Smith rode across the Iowans' front, gestured uh, toward the high ground where the Confederate works laid, and said, Second Iowa, you must take that fort. Take the caps off your guns, fix bayonets, and I will support you. Smith's charge was a success, and the right of the, of the rebel line gave way. Meanwhile, McClernand's and Wallace's men were finding it unexpectedly easy to regain ground they had lost during the morning. Soon a rebel officer came to see Smith with a flag of truce and asked if there was a federal officer present who could negotiate terms for a Confederate surrender. Smith took the letter to Grant, who read it. It was signed by an old friend from the old army, General Simon Bolivar Buckner, who by an odd turn of events, was now the commanding officer of Fort Donelson. And it asked for an armistice and the appointment of commissioners to settle terms of surrender. Grant gave the letter to Smith, asking, What answer shall I send to this, General? No terms to those damn rebels, barked Smith. Grant chuckled. Uh, then he sat on the kitchen table, drew up a tablet, and began to write. Presently, he, wrote, he read aloud to Smith and the other officers what he had written. It would become one of the most famous dispatches in American military history. Addressed to General Buckner, it went as follows. Sir, yours of this date proposing armistice and appointment of commissioners to settle terms of capitulation just received. No terms except unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted. I propose to move immediately upon your works. I am, sir, very respectfully, your obedient servant, U.S. Grant, Brigadier General. Hello and welcome to Episode 33 of Leaders of the American Civil War. In this episode, we begin our discussion of Union General and President Ulysses S. Grant. What you just heard were excerpts from Grant's first major victory of the American Civil War, as told by Bruce Catton. This was the first time Grant would capture an entire Confederate army. 
and from this moment Grant would be forever known to history as Unconditional Surrender Grant. Now, Ulysses S. Grant is probably the second most revered Civil War leader, uh, exceeded only by Abraham Lincoln. Grant's story is the story of the Civil War. Perhaps his story is also the American Dream story. He went from destitution, selling firewood on the side of the road, to the most powerful man in the country in about 10 years' time. He went from owning an enslaved person to freeing that man, and then freeing all of the enslaved peoples of the continent. He had not wanted to be a soldier, but his father signed him up for West Point without asking him. He would go from there to general-in-chief and then president. He signed the 15th Amendment into law, granting black men the right to vote. He has the reputation as a drunk and was known uh, to have problems with alcohol. He captured three entire Confederate armies during the war, the last of which was Robert E. Lee's. Just before he died, he handwrote his memoirs, which were then published by Mark Twain. He was invited by the Lincolns to attend Ford's Theater on the night of Lincoln's assassination. He was responsible for destroying the Ku Klux Klan during Reconstruction. He established the National Weather Service and pushed Congress to establish the Justice Department. Grant established Yellowstone National Park as the nation's and likely the world's first national park. On June 16, 1861, Colonel Grant took command of the 21st Illinois Regiment at the state grounds in Springfield, Illinois. Just two months earlier, the Confederacy had begun the Civil War by firing on Fort Sumter. Grant's new regiment, like many others, had just mustered for three-year service and was an absolute mess. The previous regimental commander had been ridiculed and badgered out of the camp. In mid-June, the lieutenant colonel was despondently noting in the regimental order book that the company commander had entirely lost sight of rules of discipline. This was Grant's first command. Again from Bruce Catton. There was nothing about Ulysses S. Grant that struck the eye. And this puzzled people after it was all over. Because it seemed reasonable that greatness, somehow along the line, should look like greatness. Grant could never look like anything. And he could never make the things he did look very special. And afterward, men could remember nothing more than the fact that when he came around, things seemed to happen. The most they could say, usually, was that U.S. Grant had a good deal of common sense. From Ron Chernow's Grant As so often with Grant, people badly underestimated him, and his small size and slatternly appearance brought about sadistic impulses in some men. A few soldiers began to razz their new colonel, hissing in derision. Well, I'll be damned. Is that our new colonel? One man said mockingly. He don't look as if he knew enough to find cows if you gave him the hay. Grant threw the man a glance and suggested he meant business. As he scouted the terrain, Grant noticed that his predecessor had created a police force of 80 guards armed with clubs to prevent men from sneaking out of camp. This was deemed necessary due to the unruly nature of the 21st Regiment. 
However, Grant disbanded the guards, and he planned to use leadership and not force to gain respect from his regiment. Again from Chernow. He fumed when a rough old rascal named Mexico showed up at a drill with a hangover. When Grant posted him to the guardhouse, Mexico swore, I'll have an ounce of your blood. Grant had him promptly gagged. A few hours later, he assembled the regiment and silently tore off Mexico's gag. Instead of retaliating, the tamed Mexico slunk off in humble silence. Within days, Grant had smoothly shaped order in, from chaos. Grant was very firm at first, confining men to the guardhouse with a ball and chain for 30 days for certain offenses, such as leaving their post or returning to camp after curfew. Then he would cut first-time offenders some slack, choosing to interpret their failure as stemming from ignorance rather than malice. His firmness paid off, and within days, the 21st Regiment began to look like an army unit. Soon after, some rousing speeches given by Congressman John McClernand and uh, John Logan, uh, after this, Grant's regiment was transferred from the state into the U.S. Army. Then Grant was ordered to transfer his regiment from Springfield, Illinois, to Quincy, Missouri, just across the Mississippi in northern Missouri. Grant wanted his men to become tough and hardy, so he chose to march them from Springfield to Quincy instead of allowing them to ride by train, drilling them all along the way. On the march, Grant was in his element. According to Chernow, the incessant activity was therapeutic for a man whose foremost enemy had been unwanted idleness. I don't believe there is any more orderly set of troops now in the volunteer service, Grant wrote proudly to Julia. I have been very strict with them, and the men seem to like it. We will discuss these so-called foremost enemies of Grant in detail as we go. Now, along the way to Quincy, Grant received orders to divert his force to Ironton, Missouri, instead by way of steamboat, the first of many confusing orders from uh, Fremont's uh, headquarters. However, the steamboat sent to pick up the regiment ran aground on the sandbar. While awaiting a rise in the river, Grant received a new set of orders. A rebel force under Tom Harris had trapped a, a Union regiment in Missouri on the Hannibal and Joseph Railroad. Grant was to relieve the regiment and capture or disperse the rebels. As they made their way by train, Grant found himself becoming very anxious he suddenly realized that he was about to engage the enemy for the very first time as an independent commander. Now, anxiety caused severe headaches for Grant, as we, he would experience throughout the war, especially at the end. The feeling of fear, however, soon left him when his regiment finally reached the Confederate camp. Tom Harris's rebels had fled, and when the 21st reached the campsite, it was clear that the Southern Raiders had cleared out hours before uh, they had arrived. And it dawned on Grant that the rebels had been at least as afraid of him as he himself had been of them. This had not occurred to him before, but he never forgot it. And through all the rest of the war, when he, he would never again feel the sort of cold fear that he had on that country road in Missouri. That was a trademark of Grant's character. Once he learned a lesson, 
he did not soon forget it. This would happen for him again and again during the war. So after this, the regiment settled into an area close to Hannibal, Missouri, on the, in the northeast part of the state. At one point, a runaway enslaved man made his way into camp, assuming the Union Army would protect him. However, at this time in the war, there was no real official policy about the treatment of fugitive enslaved people, so Grant was on his own as to how to respond. So Grant sent the man away. However, his chaplain escorted the man through the Union lines, giving him a bit of money and food and directions to the best way to get to Illinois in freedom. Grant's position on this matter, just like the Union's official position, would change dramatically during the months to follow. Now, just after the man left the, left, uh, the camp, his indignant owner showed up, demanding justice and detention of the fugitive. Grant told him that he wasn't responsible for slaves. He was uh, responsible only for dealing with rebels. At this time, the war was about suppressing the rebellion and not about dealing with the slavery issue. However, this would change soon. Like many people in the North, Grant believed that slavery was dying on the, uh, dying a natural death already. And he believed that a few grand Union victories would cause the rebels to flee and then the war would be over and slavery would die on the vine. It would not be long, however, before Grant and the country learned differently. During the summer of 1861, the U.S. was establishing a large army, and they needed new brigadier generals. Illinois was entitled to four of these brigadiers, so an Illinois delegation met to decide who to pick. One of those at the delegation was the impressive congressman of Grant's uh, hometown of Galena, the Honorable Elihu B. Washburn. Washburn, like a very few people in Grant's life, would play a huge outsized role in his life and future success. Again from Catton. Washburn drew a good deal of water in Republican politics, both in his own state and in Washington, and Washburn was beginning to be on Grant's side. The two were not yet intimate. Indeed, they had not met before April, but Grant had made something of an impression on Washburn, and in any case, a Galena congressman who could bring bring his home a brigadier's commission for a Galena resident would be bound to do so. Thus, because he had good support, Grant was one of the four Illinoisans named for generalships. The names were Stephen Hurlbut, the other names were Stephen Hurlbut, Benjamin Benjamin Prentice, and John McLernan. Grant was the only West Pointer of the lot. Grant found out about his promotion when his chaplain showed him an article in a local Missouri newspaper. At this point, Grant had a long, luxuriant beard, and he stroked his beard slowly, allowing himself a rare moment of pride. Only seven years earlier, he had been pushed unceremoniously out of the army in apparent disgrace for drinking. Now he was a brigadier general entitled to wear a star on each shoulder. Grant was ordered to move his regiment to Ironton and take command of the southeast district of Missouri. The Senate confirmed his commission on August 9, 
with a, a backdated effective date of May 17th of 1861. Again, his new command was in a mess, with the quartermaster having been terribly deficient, and there was no camp in place for the men. Grant immediately went about setting things in order, and in no time the Midwesterners of his command had built their camps from scratch. They made tent floors and installed bunks, tables, writing desks, and seat, all seats all by hand. Grant's responsibilities at this time were to stay put and protect north, southeast Missouri from attacks by rebels in the area under Con- Confederate Gen- General William Hardee. But Grant was not comfortable staying uh, put, so he set out and, uh, to attack Hardee's forces in the south with plans to rid southeast Missouri of rebels altogether. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Union commander of the Western Theater at this time was none other than the Pathfinder John C. Fremont. This is the same Fremont who would later be moved east into the mountains and be humiliated by Stonewall Jackson. The results against Jackson would be a major setback for the Union effort, and Fremont would soon be out of the U.S. Army altogether. But for now, he was Grant's boss in the West. He knew little about Grant, except that he had been known as a drunkard in the old army. However, in a private interview, Grant impressed Fremont enough to be given command that that he currently possessed. Fremont, who came into the war quite famous, would prove incompetent at the job of running a war effort. He surrounded himself with, with a colorful array of foreign dignitaries who served as aides and bodyguards, But these people knew nothing of how to run an army headquarters. They conducted their business with inefficiency and corruption, and they were forever issuing confusing and conflicting orders to the field. There would soon be a national scandal due to Fremont's uh, procurement practices, which amounted to buying massive amounts of poor quality goods at inflated prices. But for all of Fremont's deficiencies, he had aggressive instincts, and he recognized this quality in Grant as well. Grant decided now to set out into the field to rid the area of Confederates. But by the time he got to southernmost Missouri, Fremont's headquarters had again issued confusing orders. These orders relieved Grant of his command and transferred him back to northern Missouri, where he trained more raw recruits. Grant seemed to take all this in stride and simply did what he was told to do. Then, after further confusion... He was eventually transferred back to command of southeast Missouri, at which point he moved his headquarters to Cairo, Illinois. Now, Cairo is pronounced like the syrup, but it's spelled like the city in Egypt. I will do my best to pronounce this correctly, but forgive me if I pronounce it wrong on occasion. Cairo was the perfect jumping-off point for future expeditions into the Mississippi Valley and beyond, and Grant could see this already. The city uh, was on the, or is on the confluence of the Mississippi and Ohio rivers and is the southernmost point in Illinois. It would prove invaluable as a strategic supply center, although it was very unpleasant at the time due to the wet, swampy, mosquito, mosquito-ridden topography. Uh, Catton described it in the follow, what, following way. Wet, muddy, and fever-smitten it might be, but the boundless vitality of the Northwest was in it. 
passed its levees, went the great river, and this river, because of the war, had taken on an added dimension and a fearful new significance. Now, at about the time Grant took over at Cairo, he was informed by one of Fremont's scouts that the Confederates, under Polk, had invaded Kentucky. They had taken over Columbus, Kentucky, on the high bluffs of the Mississippi River. This was big news for two reasons. One, because Kentucky was officially neutral as a border state, which had not seceded from the Union. This rebel invasion was an aggressive act, and the people of Kentucky would not tolerate it. And two, because Columbus was situated on high bluffs above the Mississippi River, in a commanding position to block Union traffic down the river. Grant knew he had to act immediately. He sent a telegram to Fremont in St. Louis, telling him that unless he was ordered not to do it, he would be taking a force to Paducah, Kentucky, to occupy this critical river city. Paducah is located west and north of Columbus on the Ohio River, where the Tennessee empties into the Ohio. It's also very close to where the Cumberland River does the same. Grant knew these two waterways would be key to the future of Union efforts to invade the southern states of Tennessee, Mississippi, and Alabama. Also, he knew he, would, he could eventually flank the Confederate position in Columbus by movements up these waterways. Grant's men boarded steamboats, accompanied by gunboats, and headed up the Ohio River to Paducah. When they disembarked, the people of, Kentucky, or of Paducah were stunned and surprised, many of whom had hoisted rebel flags. They took possession of the city along with large stores of supplies meant for the Confederates. At about this time, Grant received approval from Fremont to do what he had just done. Then, strangely, and again due to confusion at Fremont's headquarters, Grant was relieved of command in Paducah and sent back to Cairo. Grant seems to have taken, again, taken this apparent snub in stride. He went back to Cairo and did his best to get the most capable reinforcement troops forwarded to Paducah. Now, the man replacing Grant in Paducah was General C.F. Smith. Smith was the most respected regular army officer in the service, and Grant held him in very high esteem. This was the same General Smith who, on February the 15th, a few months later, Grant would order to attack the right of a Confederate position at Fort Donelson. Smith would play an important early role in Grant's story. Now, Smith was an old-timer in the Army, tall and lean and straight, with drooping white mustachios and parade-ground stiffness. He had been commandant of cadets at West Point when Grant was there, and Grant confessed that he still felt like a schoolboy when Smith was around. And to the end of his life, he considered Smith to be the perfect soldier. Meanwhile, back in Cairo, Grant was turning the city into a large supply depot and training and a training center for recruits. It was also becoming a key center for building a large river fleet that would be used for upcoming expeditions into the Deep South. Grant was developing relationships at this time with the Navy, which would prove pivotal to his successes later in Henry Donaldson, Shiloh, and Vicksburg. Chief among these new relationships with the Navy was with the new flag officer in charge of gunboats, a man named Captain Andrew Foote. Foote had been assigned to the River Command in the middle of September. He and Grant understood one another from the start, and they made a very harmonious team. 
In early November, Grant decided it was time to engage the Confederates in the area of Columbus across the Mississippi River in a village called Belmont, Missouri. So at dawn on November 7th, Grant embarked 2,500 troops on a riverboat flotilla dropping down the Mississippi River and mooring on the Missouri side a little above Belmont, just out of range of the heavy Confederate guns on the bluffs at Columbus. From across the river in Kentucky, Confederate General Polk saw Grant's flotilla coming, so he hastily dispatched Gideon Pillow and four regiments across the Mississippi to join the one rebel regiment already positioned in Belmont and to drive off Grant's Federals. Grant's men encountered this rebel force at their Belmont camp, which was about the same size as their own force. The rebels fired on the startled Iowans of his command, and Grant's horse was shot out from under him. Grant changed horses and remained cool and composed, which inspired his men to collect themselves and ready for the advance. Now from Ron Chernow. When they encountered a long line of felled trees with sharpened points, a so-called abatee, Union forces smashed through these defenses, throwing the startled rebels back against the riverbank. After four hours of torrid fighting, the rebels... Uh, rebel, rebel withdrawal broke down into a disorderly rout. Suddenly, to their astonishment, Grant's men possessed a Confederate camp, strewn with food, baggage, and artillery. This unexpected conquest was too tempting for novice soldiers, and discipline collapsed on the spot. Flushed with victory, transported by, the, by powerful emotions, the men began to plunder the site for trophies. Sent, it, sent up cheers, declaimed creature speeches, and generally acted as if the battle had ended. Grant and his officers had no luck controlling their green troops. Then it happened that the Federals' distraction became the rebels' salvation. From their position on the riverbank, the Confederates realized they weren't going to be captured or killed, so they made their way along the riverbank so as to get behind Grant's men between the Union troops and their transport boats upriver. By this time, Grant's men knew they were surrounded and a few panicked. But Grant told his men that they had cut their way in and they could cut their way just out just as easily. So the Union army turned about and began to fight its way back to the boats. Indeed, most of the Union force did make it back to the landing and onto the boats to safety. However, Grant himself was riding around the area looking for stragglers and realized he was all alone on the shore with Confederate miniballs whizzing about his ears. When he made it to the last boat, Grant called out to the captain, Chop your lines and back out. Then the lines had been cut. Uh, members of the boat's crew laid a plank from the deck to the shore. Grant's horse settled down on its haunches and slid down the bank. And then Grant calmly rode ab- aboard on the swaying plank, the last Federal soldier to leave Belmont. Did you enjoy the podcast? If so, please take a moment to rate, review, and share the podcast. Also, please send any comments or questions to leadersof1865 at gmail.com. Meanwhile, join me next time for episode 34, in which we will continue our discussion of General Ulysses S. Grant. Mm -hmm.